Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. There's a cute ice cream shop across the street from Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. It's called Tin Pot Creamery. The store is tiny, but when it comes to ice cream, it's epic. They've got flavors like blue jasmine tea, lemon cookie with rosemary, and hazelnut coffee orange. Yum. When I was there a few months ago, I was trying to decide, what should I get? A combination? A sundae? A whole tasting flight? It's like the best kind of FOMO. And then I noticed. My body was moving. I was dancing. Just a little dance back and forth on my heels. I looked around because I was feeling a little embarrassed. And then I saw another woman. She was doing it too. I laughed and asked the cashier, do people always get wriggly at the counter? Oh yeah, she said. It's called the ice cream dance. And then I remembered being a kid in the summer, wearing my polka dot bathing suit and the ice cream dances I would do back then. I played with my food all the time. I love sticking my chubby little fingers into pitted black olives, one on each finger, and then I'd plop all 10 of them into my mouth. So I looked like a gerbil and made my friends laugh. And then I'd laugh and then we'd start all over again. I had so much fun playing with my food. What happened to that? When did we all get the message that we had to stop turning our mashed potatoes into snowmen? Or stop letting a fruit roll-up turn our tongues bright red. Remember the surprise every time from Pop Rocks? We are biologically designed to love eating. Pleasure is one of the ways our bodies tell us what they need to survive. It's real, good, intimate information from our bodies to our brains 
through our excellent senses. Pleasure is powerful. And because somewhere along the way, a lot of cultures decided that our bodies were bad, dangerous, threatening, evil, pleasure became bad too. Here in the U.S., it goes right back to the religious roots of this country, to a preoccupation with controlling and dominating people, production, and land. This stuff goes back to the 1800s with guys like Reverend Sylvester Graham. If that name sounds familiar, it's because of his connection to graham crackers. He was the leader of the dietary reform movement, which believed that if you ignored your appetite for delicious and exciting food, you could learn to ignore other, more dangerous desires, like sex and independent thinking. I mean, this dude hated masturbation. To him, it was the thing that would lead to the deterioration of the nation. He thought pleasure was a gateway to rebellion. It had to be stopped. Basically, he wanted to ban physical pleasure. He wanted to stop people from listening to the deep messages our bodies send about what they want and need. And you can still see that legacy in every supermarket with halos over diet foods and guilt-free labeling about which foods are safe for our souls. But friends, it is time for rebellion. It is time to take back our appetites. Rebel eaters, we are stepping out of the shadows with our corn dogs held high because we know pleasure and play are why we're here floating around on a tiny perfect dirt ball in space. I'm Virgie Tovar. <laughs> and this is Rebel Eaters Club. I want you to meet a woman who has helped so many people get back in touch with that simple pleasure in the body that I had as a kid, that I had again at the ice cream shop. Her name is Dr. Deb Burgard. We are preparing the mochis. Yes. I want to describe the mochis here. So these are mild coffee flavor with dolce de leche centers. Yes. Do you want more? She's an eating disorder specialist and a psychologist. The first time I ever saw Deb, she was shimmying with a hula hoop around her waist. We were at a conference and she was grinning wider than anyone else. Deb loves to play with her food. Yes. And then... There's a little plastic on top that you sort of pull down to yes. access, to get access. Yes. It's really erotic. <laughs> okay. Should we do it? Should Ooh. we dive in? Mmm. Mmm. You get like the rice, rice flour first. Mm-hmm. And then the coffee and then the caramel. And the chewy. Mm-hmm. There's like the dusting of the flour that gives it that mm-hmm. that one kind of sensation, and then the chewy yes part of it, and then the ice cream, and it's like all these different textures, and the coffee part of it is just so evocative for me. Mm. My grandmother used to love Howard Johnson's coffee ice cream. Mm. 
And it was like such a big deal. We would go out to get Howard Johnson's coffee ice cream. <laughs> you know, yes. It was a family, you know, it was just such a treat. Like such Howard Johnson of the hotel yeah. chains? Oh my gosh. Okay. That was actually my first job too. I was like working behind the counter mm. in St. Louis, you know, at the Howard Johnson's and mm-hmm. But anyway. So the mm. coffee flavors evoke the Hojo Pass. Mm-hmm. I love that. And my grandmother, mm. who was brilliant. Mm. Brilliant and pretty much hated people in general, but loved me. <laughs> yeah, those are some of my favorite people, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she was really before her time. Mm. She played jazz piano, and she always smoked, like, unfiltered Chesterfields that would sort of hang off of under her upper lip. Oh, yes. And when she was in college, and she went to college at 16, she tried to sneak out all the time. This was like in the 20s and go down to Manhattan and listen to the jazz in Manhattan. And so she was just a rebel, you know, and she had told me one time she wanted to be a psychologist. Mm. She wanted to study with Pavlov at Cornell. Wow. And her dad was kind of like, no, you're going to Connecticut College for Women. It's proper, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. So you come from a history of rebellious women? I guess I do. I mean, she, <laughs> it didn't, she didn't Deb really... came of age when fat activism was new. It got started officially in 1969 with the establishment of the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance. And better than acceptance, Deb and the people she was working with were interested in how fat people could thrive. And that radical idea was the spark that took us from 1969 to what we now call body positivity. So I'm a psychologist, and I have been doing that for quite a while, officially since the early 90s. But when I started was pretty active in second wave feminism in college in the mm-hmm. late 70s. And then when I came here to go to graduate school, I started teaching a dance class for fat women. Mm-hmm. And I called it We Dance. Like, <laughs> like nothing cutesy, no plays on words. <laughs> it's just like We Dance. And I said, this is for women over 200 pounds. Because again, let's not like beat around the bush. I want people who are in who are higher weight to really get it that I'm not talking about, you know, people who are, you know, fussing about not being the media perfect perfect body, right? Mm-hmm. And we had like 6 or 7 years run of this incredible community building fun amazing thing and I had to quit to write my dissertation because <laughs> my dissertation was like languishing. I had already written a book called um, Great Shape with mm. Pat Lyons. Yes. We were both really interested in what does it look like to provide access to physical activity that isn't, you know, kind of framed around weight loss. You know, we talked in the book about there's not really, you know, how important it was to understand this is not an obligation of fat people. Yes. But it's a right. Like you should have gear that works and fits and you should have environments that are free from weight stigma and you should, you know, be able to not have to, you know, also struggle with the oppression at the same time that you're trying to live your life, right? Yes. So that class was awesome. Absolutely. Um, I kind of want to go to your early days in becoming an eating disorder specialist. (laughs) 
I'm so curious. <laughs> well, I did have a teenage, a, a sort of stretch of six years or so from maybe 13 to 19. Um, my mom took me to Weight Watchers at 13. Um, I was trying to sort of, you know, do the dieting thing in the summer, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And so I think I weight cycled a fair bit. Um, and I remember coming back to college and I had kind of dissociated that summer. I mean, I just spent the summer lying out, you know, lying out in the sun and eating tuna from a can, you know, with nothing. Yes. (laughs) I'm just kind of, you know, coming to in the fall as I'm walking back to my dorm and I'm thinking, I'm sort of feeling my hip bones, you know, and I'm thinking, what the fuck just happened? Mm. And I'm thinking, why is this a good thing? Yes. I don't feel like myself, and I don't really know why I'm doing this. You know, there was there was supposed to be this reason for me to be thinner, that it would give me something. But I was just so, you know, lucky. I was at the college I wanted to be at. I was involved with who I wanted to be involved with. I was like, I was kind of like, I've got what I want. So what is this for? Right. You know, I felt powerful in other ways. Right. I remember being in fifth grade, and I had gone to a new school, and there were girls, like, going steady with boys already, you know, and it was mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, no. I had thought, oh, my God, I'm going to have to wait by a phone for a boy to call me? Like, what <laughs> the hell, you know? Yes. I, I was just kind of thinking, I can't win this game. I want to play a game that I can win, you know? Like, right. I don't want to, I don't, can't win this game. I'm never going to be that girl. Mm. But there are things that I am really good at. And so I invested in those things, I think. And so mm. this sort of dieting thing through my teens was sort of a, you know, kind of good, good faith effort to conform, yes. you know, which kind of blew up finally, you know, and kind yes. of like, no, this is the last vestige of this thing. <laughs> it's yes. just kind of not. And, you know, as my sister, you know, was coming along four years later and really doing more of the conventional stuff, you know, and sort of being successful at it, but also developing an eating disorder. Mm. You know, it was really weighing on me. You know, I was worried about her. She was really struggling at some points in time. And my mom had struggled so much with her weight, and my dad been, had been a weight cycler and been so exposed to all that stuff in med school. And And so I think I just, I ended up, doing these intellectual searches that were really about what is the effect of the culture on our feelings about our bodies and our relationship with our bodies and our ability to take care of and be motivated to feel like nurturing ourselves. Mm. And then when I was in grad school um, interviews, I remember them asking me, what do you want to do your research on? And I was saying, you know, women and our appetites. I want to do stuff on our appetites. I want to look at desire and how do we how do we resist and how do we deal with violence about it and how do we deal with you know um oppression around it and how do we fight for our our well-being you know yeah and my, i guess my whole you know kind of coming of age was also the coming of age of the first stages of this field which there's so much wrong with it absolutely 
What are some of the major issues you see in the world of eating disorder treatment and diagnosis? Mm. Well, there's a real investment that a lot of the specialists in eating disorder have in making sure that anorexia is more of a purity standard of white supremacy mm-hmm. than a, an actual disease, <laughs> like mm-hmm. that makes an actual disease category. Okay. So one of the ways that that manifests is that you have to, you know, a lot of people believe you have to be emaciated to be diagnosed with anorexia. And my analogy for that is always to have them think about, let's say you're a plane and it's 40,000 feet and you lose an engine. Are you going to wait to say, oh, we should do something about that until you, you know, are almost, you know, skimming the mountaintops? You know, like, like, is that what you want? Mm. So here's a fact. All sorts of people with all sorts of bodies can have eating disorders. But even in ED treatment, people get different treatments depending on the size of their bodies. Your body experiences food restriction as a threat. It does not like threats. After you stop restricting, whether it's a diet you read about in a magazine or an ED, your body will do the magical healing work of gaining weight. This is called weight restoration. That's when your body tries to get itself to a place where it feels safe and good again. And that place, that weight, where it feels safe, it's known as the set point. Set point is the weight range in which your body functions best. It's why dieting, restriction, and even surgical intervention don't tend to work long term. But in most ED recovery, doctors prescribe a weight for you, a kind of target weight, regardless of what your natural set point is. So that means the wisdom of your body can be at odds with what the doctor has deemed to be your target weight. And that is a problem. When your set point is higher than your doctor's target weight, then you will likely find yourself being encouraged to start restricting again even though you're in recovery for an eating disorder. This is really backwards and really harmful. It reintroduces fat phobia when that's a big part of what, in fact, a lot of people in ED recovery are trying to heal from. So effed up. But there is a simple solution. Stop equating a low weight with wellness. And if you're fat, guess what? You are not a failed thin person. You're just a person whose body thrives at a bigger size. It can be as simple and neutral as that. All of this to say, dieting doesn't work. Some of us are just bigger and restricting food might make our bodies smaller for a period of time, but by far most people who diet gain the weight back because their bodies want to be bigger. Because embedded in some of our genes is the lesson that bigger bodies are more likely to survive. We're going to talk more on that after the break. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? 
When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. We're back. Before the break, I was talking about how when most people diet, they gain the weight back because their bodies want to be the size they were, not the size they were dieting to achieve. And the reason why is embedded in our DNA people who are on the planet right now, at least if we look like, let's take the United States as an example, two out of three of us apparently had ancestry where people were able to be geniuses at making bodies out of too little fuel. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Right? Because we're two out of three of us are maintaining these bigger bodies on the same basic intake, right? Yes. And so these people, these one in three people, they think they're the norm, Mm. but maybe their ancestry didn't include a bunch of famines. Right. um, Or as many or whatever. They had some other thing that they were good at. You know, they they had some other trait that they were good at that people survived, right? Like this is why biological diversity is good in a species. We have a lot of different challenges that we're facing. But... You know, when I think about how much the capacity to slow down your metabolism when you don't have enough food or get a lot to eat when you have access to food or store it instead of, you know, 
making it disappear in the form of heat or energy yes. or movement or something. Those those things are kind of tossed off and they, like like we don't need that anymore. Right. As for like right. What planet are you living on? <laughs> like this, yes. you know, I don't think that's true at all. Like we have this incredible uncertainty that we're we're looking at right now and you know, we're going to I think we're going to absolutely need these capacities. Mm-hmm. And they're not bugs they are features yes yes <laughs> i mean that's the thing right like i think that this is extraordinary that this is magic right it's, um it's it's it is it's i just feel like there's such a simplification of what the magic stuff that our bodies really do like the amount of strategies that our bodies have for all of this stuff and what we really don't know and how amazing it all is and you know just trying to find a path, you know, for me, trying to find the path with somebody who's just, you know, got a little tiny ember because they're just almost gone from, from this, from this disease. And, you know, that could be somebody at a higher weight too. Right. Could be anywhere along the, on the weight spectrum and trying to really help them feel like they deserve to be here. And they, absolutely deserve to eat and they deserve to get fatter (laughs) and they deserve to take up this space and they're precious. Mm. Do you see dieting as like whatever the average American considers a regular diet? Do you see it as part of a spectrum of disordered eating? Do you see them as in different buckets or how do you conceptualize restriction behavior? I think of it as a trained um, behavior that Mm. um, is a response to the accusation Mm. that you have been sinful in your eating. It goes back to the religious idea, I think. You know, if you're fat and we don't like fat people, that means that you're not right with God. I think the roots of all of this are the same oppression. Mm, Yes. And it hits people differently Mm. based on your privilege. Mm. You are the first person who taught me that our relationship to food is metaphorical. Mm. For me, I think about my history of dieting and restricting and attempting to starve myself was it was a lot of things. I mean, it was about trying to assimilate into an American ideal, an ideal of whiteness. But it was also, in many ways, an attempt to gain control over my experience of abuse. Because Mm -hmm. the people, the fat phobes around me were saying, I will stop abusing you. And in fact, I mean, most of them were straight boys, right? Um, I will, not only will I stop abusing you, I will then proceed to try to have sex with you (laughs) if you just stop being fat. I'll value you. Yes. Yes. And I mean, I think there's kind of, this is often something I talk about where people, I mean, especially for me as like a fat girl um, being taught fat phobia, um, I was learning that not only was something was wrong with my body, but also that the best thing that I could possibly get would be sexual desire from men. Mm. And for a lot of feminine people who are fat, that lesson comes together 
there's sort of like one trauma. Mm-hmm. And it explains, I mean, it certainly explains a lot of my sexual history because I, I literally felt no autonomy, right? Like my understanding of safety was entirely tied up with masculine sexual approval. But anyway, yeah. Um, <laughs> but like, yes, you know, yes. but to kind of like get back to this, right? Like, you know, there's no way that what I ate was actually going to control my experience of abuse. Ugh. And yet I truly believed that on some level. And so I'm curious if you can kind of talk about the functionality of our relationship to this thing that we all need, that we engage with every single day. <laughs> oh, so oh, you're just so smart. <laughs> this is like, <laughs> Thank really, you. Just such a pleasure to talk to you. Um they tell you what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And when you're, when you have less power, when you're younger, when you have less privilege, yep. you have to do it. Right. You feel like you have to do it. I talk to people a lot about, you know, kind of, you know, you had to do this thing and now you have to show yourself that you can do the opposite. And what does it look like after you've convinced yourself of that? Like, what is it? What's next? You know, like, what Mm. is this really? That's the exciting thing to me. Yes. I think about, for me, you know, that moment of transition from hating my body and all that stuff, it didn't feel viable to to hop over until I saw a femininity that really resonated with Mm, me. And that was when I was introduced to fat activism. And these were queer, fat, mostly women, femmes, and... They a lot of a lot of us are working class, mm-hmm. and it's like that kind of bombastic, over the top, amazing femininity comes from wor- the working class, comes from people mm-hmm. of color, and so it was like this kind of thing where I was like, oh, I see myself in you, and I can be this superlatively feminine person in my fat body. But it really was a hearkening back to my own past yes. on some level, you know? It's the it's the connection with your actual magic in your yes. ancestry, right? It's totally. it's not a it's not a version of it that's been fed through white supremacy and burped out on the other side, mm-hmm. right? When you are at these crises moments of divesting mm. and kind of going, I'm not really gonna do this. Yes. Because I'm not going to do this. I don't want to fucking do this. Yes. You, you're you sort of in a crisis because you're like, well, what am I going to do? Like, what right. does this look like? Like, who am I? What do I pull forward in, in, my, in my awareness, in myself, in my history, in my culture, in my traditions, in the other people who I know, in my community? What am I going to give energy to? Mm. What, do I, what am I nurturing right. about this? Yes. I mean, to go back to to the concept of of like leaving diet culture, mm-hmm. which is major, right? And I think like one of the conversations that's emerging uh, more and more is really what are you giving up when you leave, right? Because you're giving up suffering and poo poo garbage and like you know, all this stuff that's like really <laughs> trashy, but you're giving up all the what the poo poo garbage represents, which is acceptance. And and every I really 
believe, Deb, that like we all like and I think about, you know, I have this relationship to my biological family, for instance, where I'm like, I know there's a lot of problems there a lot. Right. I know there's a lot of harm. And yet there's a part of me that will always want them to love me. There's Mm -hmm. a part of me that will always want their approval. Mm -hmm. And I think the truth is we as wherever we grow up, we have that relationship on some level to our culture. Of course. And so what does it look like to not only have the true sight of being like, wow, my dad is a horrible person, a.k.a. America. <laughs> like, my dad has a really violent past and I have hopes for him to recover, but I can't actively be like engaging in his delusions anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to sort of say, not only am I able to see that now, but I actively have to step back from him and I can't keep waiting on his approval. Mm-hmm. I remember the early days of leaving Die Culture and it was like dancing in the streets and, you know, it was just very celebratory. And then the sobering reality kind of a few years in where I'm like, oh, wow, this that was a big decision. And I think one of the reasons that there's such a giant schism right now is because, you know, there's a there's a bunch of other just perspectives and ways of being in the world that have come into the public square in such a beautiful and boisterous and 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 magnificent, you know, kind of way. And the existing culture of, you know, middle-aged white guys, you know, mm-hmm. is kind of kind of blown off the table. And then people feel like, you know, I I have no place in this next thing, or I have to fight right. for it to go back right. to this to the what it was before. And um, and and when we really we we kind of think about that in sort of abstract terms, but in some weird way, I think we're talking about a, a desperate feeling of. Can I bridge the worlds with you? You know, can yes. I bridge these worlds of who you are and who I am? Can you sort of stretch enough to know me, mm. you know, and know the ways that I'm different from you and know the ways that I'm that what you've what you're thinking is actually harming me? You yes. know, yes, I mean, this is brave territory. Yes. Um, and I think that's that's what gives me some kind of hope you know because i see people doing it you know yes absolutely i guess this is a big one if you could have a magic wand and fix some of the problems you see in your office out in the world with diet culture what what, like, what would you do with this wand what would change <laughs> how would people like in i mean i guess like to bring it back to food how would people interact with food in this magical world where there aren't all of these intensely layered issues? We would play. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. you know, we would have so much more room for the satisfying aspects of um, creating and nurturing each other and being able to cherish that we're in these bodies Mm. part of this opportunity to be in this spacesuit that is a human body yes (laughs) um is the experience that we have of something that's not you Mm. you're going to take into your body 
Yes. And it's going to become part of you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? And and that's just a, just so intimate, right? And it's so oh. and it's so amazing that we do it with each other. Yes, Deb. It's been so amazing talking to you. Thank you. It's been so good. Thanks, Virgie. <laughs> I think about my good friend's son, Atticus. I remember going out with the two of them when Addie was one year old. We were out shopping for incense and rose quartz, as one does, and he starts screaming at the top of his lungs. Turns out he was hungry. When we finally sat him down with a scrambled egg and buttery toast, he started bouncing in his high chair. He began to throw air kisses at everyone around him. That is how amazing it feels to feed our bodies. Eating gives us pleasure. It makes us dance in public. Why wouldn't we play with food? Why wouldn't we celebrate the way it puts us around a table with the people we love most? It gives us life. So for this week's journal prompt, I'm thinking of that image of Deb at the conference, hula hooping. What if we all stopped thinking of food as diet? What if movement didn't just mean exercise? What if food and movement were just things we do for pleasure, for fun? What would look different in your life if fun was the goal? If you want to write down your thoughts, you can send it to us at rebeleatersclub at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 862-231-5386 and your story could make it onto the show. That number is 862-231-5386. When you're done, don't forget to give yourself the merit badge you earned, the Move and Eat for Fun badge. You can print it out on our website, rebeleatersclub.com. Then go find the Rebel Eaters Club Spotify playlist and show us your happy food dance. Tag us on social with hashtag Rebel Eaters Club, all one word, or tag us at Transmitter Pods. Next week, we're talking to Chef Fresh Roberson about how food is a connector, not just to ourselves, but to our communities, to the earth, and to our ancestors. Oh, these foods are good and these foods are bad. <laughs> and often in the bad category falls these culturally significant foods for me that my parents and grandparents and ancestors have grown up eating and brought over and how colonization and all of that has like ripped that apart. Rebel Eaters Club is an original podcast from Transmitter Media, the podcast company that's a perfect bite. I'm Virgie Tovar. The show is produced by Lacey Roberts and Jordan Bailey. Our editor is Sarah Nix. Greta Cohen is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Dara Hirsch. Please head to your favorite podcast app and give us a review. It will help us grow the club. See you next week. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. 
Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.